welcome to Ask the Expert. Um, we've got Dr. Mark Husing here. He leads an independent research program at UC Davis um, that is focused on the physiological role of paracrine crosstalk within pancreatic islets. And this work uh, really builds on a novel negative feedback loop that his lab actually discovered where the peptide hormone ercortin, uh, uh, that's a mouthful, three, released by beta cells in response to glucose is necessary to promote somatostatin secretion from the pancreatic delta cells. Delta cells don't get a lot of you know, love or press. So this is gonna be very interesting to see what's going on here. So somatostatin in turn inhibits the beta cells to prevent excellent insulin release. And by visualizing the behavior of multiple islet cell types simultaneously and in real time, um, the Houston group quantifies and compares the functional responses between the main endocrine islet cells types in response to hormone, nutrient, and neurotransmitter stimulation. So this comparison of functional responses across populations of hundreds or even thousands of individual cells really reveals a significant functional heterogeneity among alpha, beta, delta cells that uh, really extends and goes far beyond the subset of immature virgin beta cells described by his group a few years ago. So we cannot wait to see uh, what you are going to share today and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Monica, for the introduction and for uh, the opportunity to talk about the work that we do. Unlike uh, conventional talks where I just try and set up and, and tell a complete scientific story, what I figured I'd do for this one is to focus really on, show a couple of vignettes with, with hopefully pretty videos, and then maybe um, spend a little bit of time on, on, on the methods that we use, which are how we are able to image they're not the only ones, uh, the only methods of doing that, but uh, maybe as a, as a as a as a point of of, of a starting point for a discussion and the Q and A as to how one goes about um, visualizing behavior of islet cells in real time. So as we all know, um, everybody in our field, for all the right reasons, focuses on beta cells because the beta cell in the islet is the only cell that, when dysfunctional causes disease, type one diabetes, when we lose our beta cells in an autoimmune mediated attack type two when beta cells fail over time uh, because they're asked to work too hard in the face of peripheral insulin resistance and more rarely but no less no, no less impactful diseases of, of hyperinsulinemia where excess insulin can cause dangerously low or even fatal um, hypoglycemia because the beta cells uh, are unable to, to seize releasing insulin in time testament to the fact that insulin is a really powerful hormone that needs to be managed carefully as anybody with type one diabetes uh, will tell you. So the focus of my lab, and I'll set this up in this slide, is that the islet contains more than beta cells, even though I just uh, said that the beta cell is, is bar none the most important cell in the islet. And there's also alpha cells and delta cells, and, and they communicate. There's no coincidence that they occur in the same islet together. There's extensive crosstalk going on, and we're, we're starting to unravel that. Um, uh, principally, there's glucagon, which traditionally we position as a counter-regulatory hormone, really important in preventing uh, dangerously low hypoglycemia. Um, however, I think more recently, uh, I think there's been a revisiting of this old notion that glucagon is actually able to stimulate beta cells on the high glucose, which mechanistically is not surprising at all. And, and we're now revisiting the potential physiological relevance of that, where the view um, actually starts to shift from during the prandial phase when we digest a meal and take up nutrients, where glucagon actually becomes cooperative with insulin in pushing additional insulin release rather than being its functional antagonist. As the textbooks 
traditionally have you believe. And then finally, we have delta cells, which make SST, somatostatin. And somatostatin is a quintessential inhibitor. Whatever you find it, it will inhibit. And in the islet, it will inhibit delta, beta cells and alpha cells. We've known this for a long time. And the physiological importance of this is often uh, overlooked or even understudied. And, and I'm not going to go into much detail, but there is a direct physiological role of delta cells, and one can quantify that. Now, the overall image then or picture then is that what we tend to uh, call glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Now, you take some islets, whether it's mouse or human, you put them in a dish, you add glucose, and you measure insulin release, and we say, okay, this is the insulin that's coming out of the islet in response to glucose stimulation. What actually is going on there is it's the direct beta cell autonomous response to nutrient stimulation. Uh, potentiated by an alpha cell dependent mechanism and restrained at the same time by a delta cell mediated feedback inhibition. And then just to illustrate how incredibly complex this can be, uh, just in the islet alone, there are uh, hundreds, this is just the top 150 most abundant GPCRs only, this is not even talking about any other receptor or, or channel, um, expressed uh, some, some of them in all islet cell types, some of them selectively in alpha, beta, or delta cells, as this schematic kind of tries to convey. And all of these do something. All of these mediate an activation or an inhibition of one or more islet cell types. So, and we, we understand some of these, and others we are just now starting to understand. Okay, so the next slide, I'm, I'm going to try and illustrate the complexity of islet behavior. And that slide has sound. So you may want to keep your finger at the volume bottom button in case it is a little bit too uh, too loud on your end. I think it should be okay, but just as a heads up. So what you're looking at here is an islet that is responding. The, the readout here is calcium. Um, this, this is an islet OU, a genetically encoded calcium sensor, GCAM6. And the cells you're seeing firing here on the basal fasting glucose uh, are delta cells. And they're always active. There's always this basal activity going on that um, we think is important in conveying alpha cell, uh, conveying delta cell function. And then as, as we shift from low glucose to high glucose, we then start to see beta cells chime in and become activated. And then if we add uh, amino acids, alpha cells also start to chime in. So now we, see, we actually see what's going on in response to a mixed meal stimulation or an epinephrine stimulation um, at, all, for, at all cell types in the island at the same time. Um, and it just hopefully conveys a, a little bit of the complexity of those behaviors that are going on all at the same time. That, this is just beautiful. It's amazing. So this is a trace that's um, probably an hour and a half long. Um, and, and we're just imaging this near continuously. Uh, there's like a, a, probably a, a five to 10 second uh, frame rate here. Um, and then we purposefully image all these cell types at the same time. And now what we do is we, we fix these islets and we stain them. And then you can come back and find the exact same islet and by conventional hormone staining, confirm that the cells that behave like alpha cells indeed express glucagon, the cells that behave like delta cells and indeed express SST. So we have a, a really high confidence that the cells that we record from are also the cells that we think that they are. Um, and then you can do neat tricks. Uh, I'm not gonna set up the whole story here, but you can do neat tricks like, okay, ask the question, these delta cells are constantly active. What happens if we remove them? There's ways, ways to remove them. This is work by a, a grad student of mine, Jessica Wang, who has done phenomenal work um, setting up this model where we basically are able to in vivo ablate delta cells and then later on take out the islets. And as you can show that model works, what it does is it causes a shift in the set point for glucose. This is not a surprise because SST inhibits insulin. If you remove the inhibition, you get a little bit more insulin coming out, leading to a reduction in the set point for glucose. 
So this green line of islets with no delta cells, these mice have a stable lower glucose set point than uh, control islets, uh, control mice that have the same transients but did not receive diphtheria toxin. And there is a lot more data behind this, but we can also then use imaging as a reader to kind of visualize what happens here. Because what happens here, if we now, long story short, create a quadruple transgenic mouse, we first ablate delta cells, then express GCAM6 in only beta cells, and then expose islets with uh, and without delta cells to a glucose ramp, and then test how long it takes at what glucose concentration do beta cells start to respond to glucose as a measure for glucose threshold? And if you do that, and again, I put sound underneath here so you can differentiate uh, also audibly what happens in the absence and the presence of delta cells. So what happens in this in this scenario is is simply and hopefully you can see as well as hear it you see uh, beta cells in the presence of uh, of in the absence of delta cells respond by one to one and a half millimolar glucose earlier which is exactly the change in set point that we observed in vivo and then again we can do um, uh, we can take a still of the live video and then do a postdoc video and confirm that delta cells indeed were ablated on the right and we can track every single cell we recorded from. Now, uh, what we also can do is start to look at coordination of different cell types. I'm going to show you a video here that shows delta cells kind of firing in that random pattern. But then as beta cells come on, you see delta cells becoming entrained by those beta cells. So delta cells on their own are firing. And as soon as beta cells come on, delta cells also shift on and stay on. Uh, and these two different behaviors are interesting. And it raises the question, uh, what is the mechanism behind that? Again, we can post or control this. And it's just visualized here. This is work by another grad student, an MDPhD student, Mohammed, who is, who is showing that, yeah, you can get these very fast also, uh, calcium spikes in these delta cells. But um, in response to sustained high glucose, a good number of these delta cells become entrained by neighboring beta cells and show that oscillatory pattern that is slow, superimposed on which you have these fast spikes. And then he does something like uh, so he's, he's fax purifying delta cells away to demonstrate that if we remove delta cells from beta cells, that slow entrainment that is present here goes away, demonstrating that delta cells are entrained by beta cells because this behavior is not, not obvious, uh, which sets up two different pathways. Either there's paracrine crosstalk or there's gap junction connections. And we're pursuing exactly what the mechanism is. We have a pretty good idea that it's probably predominantly paracrine and not fully paracrine. Um, and just to illustrate how one goes about doing this without, without going over the whole data set, for which th there's no time here, this is basically a set of islets where we are simultaneously visualizing both beta and delta cells. And I'm going to simply take you through it. It's an 80-minute recording. And we're going to go through a couple of different uh, simulations. So butamide will activate both alpha, uh, delta and, and beta cells, and then we're going to wash that out. And then we see delta cells retaining activity. And now we're going to go with glucose, and you'll hear delta cells come on first, and then beta cells. Then we're going to add diazoxide, which we know will inhibit beta cells. And because it opens KTP channels, it'll do the same thing to delta cells right here. So that's what silencing sounds like. And then we wash the diazoxide out, and we'll see both of these cell types come on again. And then what you do is you come back with an L-type calcium channel blocker, isratapine, which will also silence all beta cells and most delta cells.
There we go. So now they're silenced again. The few delta cells remain active, and that's probably reminiscent of an R-type calcium channel mechanism that also has been reported for delta cells. So the point of this then is to show that both that, that basal spiky behavior that I showed earlier that is present in these delta cells uh, is fully gone if you prevent depolarization, uh, which I think tells us a lot about whether or not gap junctions are involved in that mechanism. And that's the story we're pursuing. It's a part of a larger story that we're, that we're pursuing. The, the Approach-wise, though, what this does, just a single uh, trace gives us uh, in-depth temporal resolution on 80, uh, 79 delta cells and 122 beta cells in, in just uh, a couple of hours. So the, the amount of throughput and the resolution of the data that we get, both spatially and temporally, is, is really quite helpful. And um, finally, last really brief thing yet is, a, is work by uh, now Dr. Glenn Noguchi. He just graduated last week, who has done wonderful work um, on a story where, we, where he's been able to visualize the behavior of alpha cells in response to a, a number of textbook activators of their signaling and secretion. Um, and what you're going to see on the left is calcium, on the right, cyclic AMP in response to amino acids, um, in response to epinephrine, and in response to the posterior pituitary hormone AVP, um, which are all known to activate glucagon secretion. Um, but the, the, their effect on the behavior on, of calcium and cyclic AMP is different. Uh, that's summarized here. Calcium is activated in response to all three of them, uh, cyclic AMP only in response to um, epinephrine. But what also is interesting, and what I want to draw your attention to here, is that not every alpha cell responds to all these stimuli. All of them respond to AVP, but there is a subset of alpha cells that doesn't respond to epinephrine, and a different set, subset that has no response to amino acids. And what Glenn then did, among many other things that I'm not going to go into, is he basically did a very similar trace, back-to-back uh, -back the same um, protocol, to demonstrate that this is not some kind of random stochastic event. But if you stimulate the same set of alpha cells, twice with the same protocol, three hours apart, the same cells that did not respond the first time around to say amino acids or epinephrine, we continue to not respond a few hours later, meaning that there is at least some stability to the heterogeneity and it's probably um, underlying some biology. So then this is the actual setup that we use, one of two microscopes that we have, um, where it's a, it's a resonant confocal microscope um, where uh, we have a perfusion system hooked up that basically runs the whole thing on its own. So we, we program the microscope, we program the perfusion, and we're able to walk away um, and, um, and, and come back when the trace is done. And that's really helpful because if we run traces that are like three, four hours, we can actually just run them overnight, come back the next day um, and, um, and, and collect the data. This is the actual video that I took, that you just saw getting taken on the microscope, now played back for you. The, the biology of this, is not necessarily all that important, um, but um, it is nice to be able to just measure across, in this one video, uh, hundreds of beta cells at the same time. So how do we go about doing this? Um, we uh, use a suite of Cree drivers for beta cells. We use predominantly uricortin 3 Cree. It's a phenomenal beta cell specific Cree that is really specific and hits every single beta cell, uh, almost every single beta cell. We also use the ins one Cree ER if you have to have something tamoxifen inducible. For alpha cells, we're using Klaus Kessler's Ocrigon Cree ERT uh, model. And for delta cells, we use a constitutive uh, SST Cree that has the additional benefit of being a functional null. So if you breed it to homozygosity, you actually get a, knock a knockout mouse for SST, which is also very helpful. And then we've done most of the imaging that I've shown you today with the GCAM6 calcium sensor and the Kemper sensor. 
And as I said, we use a resonance scanning confocal microscope with four or six lasers, depending on what, what reporters we, we, um, we use. We perfuse with a pressure-based system. It, essentially, it works just like a, fax, like a flow cytometer where you pressurize the contents of your tube that then get pushed into some microfluidic tubing and gets flown over your um, a little valve that you can control to basically switch from, between different channels. We have up to 11 channels on the system. It's a commercial system from a European company called Elflow, and it's been really helpful to us. We adapted it on a few uh, in a few ways, but it, it pretty much is, is out of the box with a few minor modifications. And then we make our own imaging chambers, and there is basically a, a mold that we design and 3D print in-house, and then we plasma bond that to these imaging dishes um, the, the, what's on the figure on the on the figure here is, the, is an outdated version. We, we we basically just made a straight slot. That's what we use these days, and we can perfuse for hours on end with 200 microliters a minute. The eyelids are perfectly fine; they don't move, um, and they are they are behaving beautifully for us in the microscope. And and that too is just really nicely stable, so we don't have to worry about like spikes in in flow messing up the stability of our imaging. Um, and that's. Um, that's that's uh, so these molds you, you basically just print these you make nine of these chambers at a time and you you add a little um in lead and out lead that you punch in there so you can then slide uh, some microfluidic tubing in there and connect this to the refusion system and then off you go so that's how that works and for us it's been working really uh, well and i'd be happy to share details if people are interested in, in knowing more but this is, this is the gist of it and i think with that um I, i'm going to end on this video some of you might have seen this it's one that we took serendipitously a student of mine, Sharon Lee, came, came, come, came, came to find me and say, hey, look what I'm finding. She basically finds, found this, this macrophage, or we think it's a macrophage, that is kind of crawling through the eyelid and kind of extending its pseudopodia, behaving like a macrophage does. Uh, and it just happened to hang out in the focal plane long enough for her to get this absolutely beautiful video uh, in the midst of beta cells behaving. And with that, um, there are a lot of undergrads uh, who contributed to this and a really talented crew of grad students. I need to give a shout out to Marcus Flischer, my lab manager, who's done a phenomenal work in setting up a bunch of this up, along with Glenn and um, Jessica and Mohammed, whose work I shared, and Sharon. Um, and uh, last but certainly not least, Alex, who is uh, my bioinformatician. He also just graduated, but he also, he also is the person writing all these codes that we use to quickly extract and summarize both visually and audibly the traces that we collect. And with that, I, I will shut up and hopefully be able to field some questions from the audience. Wow, that was really elegant and and so, um, so interesting. The whole setup that you guys devised and then, you know, the, the results you got from it uh, are just really extraordinary. Um, I Thank see you. there's a bunch of questions. Let's see, is anyone uh, interested in, in asking a question? You can raise your hand or you can un... This is, I think, from a layperson. Tamoxifen is used in cell biology research. It's a chemotherapeutic, chemotherapeutic agent. Yes, that is true. Um, I had a question. You know, we're having, we're hosting Richard uh, Benninger in mm -hmm. January, and um, his talk is going to be really based on, you know, is there a um, a pacemaker in the islet or not? And so, and sort of in talking with people like uh, Jacob Hexer Sorensen, who's at Gubra, he says he see, you know, he's very into the visualization of the eyelids. He says he sees that. Um, he doesn't have this sort of level of, um, you know, kind of monitoring that you guys have, but he's, he's really just interested in the optics and he's sort of seeing 
something like a pacemaker. Um, in conversation with Desio Zirik, he feels that there's likely one too. And um, well, and we have Guy Rara here who, who also, I think, um, can speak to that with a lot more authority than I am. I've, I've been following that field for uh, with, with a lot of interest. Um, and it's clear that there is always a cell that responds first. And I think between uh, between Guy and uh, and Richard, I think we have uh, a few of the folks who have really led that, uh, along with with Dave Hodson, of course, who who did that work with Guy together. Do you want to speak to this guy? Yeah, I'd love to hear from him. Sure, thanks. I mean, yeah, there is there is some skepticism in the field um, around whether these exist, but I think the experiment that we did with David in 2016, showing if we clamp what we've identified as a highly connected cell using an optogene we suppress connectivity and calcium dynamics across the plane we're imaging says that that cell, if it's not a pacemaker, it is at least required to transmit calcium waves. So um, proving that something is actually, you know, the originator and, and is driving in the way that you'd see cells in the AV node driving cardiac contraction is, is more difficult to prove. I mean, the refinements that we've made in subsequent years indicate that there are multiple sets of these um, or multiple subsets of, of, of beta cells, some of which are wave originators, some of which are leaders, some of which are very highly connected. And Richard Benninger, who you hear from, has much of the same data. So it's more complex, I think, that, than we uh, proposed five years ago. And we now have to understand this hierarchy of these subsets of cells. And But as I said, identifying a, a bona, fide, bona fide pacemaker is, is not straightforward. Yeah, that's well and, said. And I'll, just add, I'll just add to that real quick, which I think is an outstanding question that basically uh, literally goes beyond the pacemaker in the single eyelid. But, and that's how the whole thing is connected in, in situ, right? Because we also know um, that uh, incident output is, is synchronous across the whole pancreas, which uh, clearly must involve some neural mechanism. Um, and how then that is basically imposed upon uh, and perhaps even supersedes the islet autonomy, if you will, to respond that will, because for that to happen, you have to have all the islets or most of the islets in a pancreas responding synchronously, uh, kind of, and whether they do so by innovating these uh, a subset of cells that then basically give out marching orders to each individual islet that make all islets respond at the same time. I think that's still unresolved, and it would be very nice to be able to visualize that. Clearly, our system is incapable of doing that kind of question. Yeah, I mean, that kind of mesoscale technology you'd need to analyze at scale across, you know, many millimeters with cellular resolution. It's, it sounds as though it should be easy, but it's extremely difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. What about the overlay of the sympathetic nervous system? Um, I would be very interested to hear your commentary on it and it, its impact on control. So I don't know if, if, if sympathetic nervous system, I, I, don't, I don't think of that sympathetic nerves are controlling the pacemaker activity of the beta cells. I think there is an important pacemaker, uh, sympathetic, there's the potential for sympathetic input on the alpha cell. And um, alpha cells are exquisitely sensitive to epinephrine, although the physiological contribution of that, I think is, is not, I mean, it's, it's debated. Uh, I know people dismiss epinephrine as just not relevant for activating alpha cells. And nevertheless, it's, it's arguably the most potent agent that we have in doing so, at least under the microscope. And teleologically speaking, there probably is the capability of alpha cells to respond so robustly for a reason. So I, I, I don't 
I, I subscribe to the notion that if there is something there that is so robustly eliciting a response, uh, it is not just sitting there idly for no physiological reason. So there, there likely is a, is a scenario where whether it's during um, a fight or flight response where your epinephrine kind of comes in and is able to simultaneously in one fell swoop silence the beta cell and activate alpha cells and kind of make sure that you um, preserve nutrients uh, when you need them. Whether epinephrine and sympathetic activation is uh, important for counter-regulation on the other side of the, of the equation, um, I think is, 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 um, is you, you'll find differing opinions on that. And I think that's still, I think that's, there's still opportunity there to, to revisit that and, and also compare that to some of the other molecules that have more recently been revisited as potential activators of alpha cells under those circumstances, particularly AVP in the work by Linford Bryant. Yeah. We've been talking quite a bit recently to Zachary um, Freyberg. He's yep. at the University of Pittsburgh and he's really interested in kind of qualifying and quantifying, quantitating the um, neurotransmitter sort of milieu that interfaces with the islet cells, you know, and, and he's really, um, he approaches it from a totally different way, right? He's an MD PhD, but he's like a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm familiar with his work. It's fascinating. I mean, there yeah, is so much, cool. there is so much, uh, Poten- I mean, there's so many different receptors there. I mean, the, the, the potential for, there's so many different neurotransmitters and peptides and nutrients that are uh, able and capable of, of activating uh, or sometimes inhibiting um, the islets that I, I, the benefit of being able to visualize the, the system in its completeness, even if it's only one um, second messenger at a time, it kind of scratches the surface as to how complicated the islet actually is. And here we are looking at a system that is just three endocrine cells. And, and that is already so incredibly complex. But we're, I, I do think there is value in, 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 in visualizing the whole thing, not just on the one condition and at one cell type, but at least uh, multiple cell types at the same time. Ava is asking a question, Ava's asking a question about epinephrine on, um, on delta cells. And delta cells are much like beta cells in that scenario. Yeah. I wonder also, like, if anyone can, is interested in, you know, sort of chipping in, how, um, what, what are the next steps for getting that, cracking that uh, 3D visualization problem? What tools, you know, or what companies are best, you know, situated to kind of approach that, to really get a 3D appreciation of what's happening in the islet, maybe even in vivo? I mean, are there, is anyone close? Is there any kind of optical innovation that's happening that could really drive that? Because it is, it, I, I'm hearing it a lot, that it, it's, it's an important understanding. I mean, it's, it, it's important to kind of like go next level to really see that 3D if possible. Well, I think it's possible. Um, I'll give a shout out to, for example, Amelia Linnemann, who has done phenomenal work imaging uh, intact islets in situ. Um, in, in, so in a, in, a, in, a, in a live animal, people have done this in the anterior chamber of the eye as well. Uh, there's benefits to that. It's impressive work. Uh, but whenever you take that in vivo, you're going to take a hit on your throughput. Um, so there's always these trade-offs. What we can do is hundreds or thousands of cells, but clearly we're missing... Uh, vascularization and, and innovation. So um, if you wanted to go faster and, and get 3D faster, you're looking at light sheet microscopes. Um, that's possible. Um, however, I, when you 
are approaching some of these platforms and say, well, great, I have my islets here and I want to now run my glucose media over it. They look at you like, okay, you want to do what now? You want to, you want to run buffers over, my, over these expensive microscopes? So what you'll find is that some of these setups are really made to image, but they're not always as conducive to doing the live imaging uh, of the type that we do. That doesn't mean that that can be resolved, but um, it's going to require um, standard setups that I think are available now, but they're going to require some retooling, maybe some uh, parts making and some fabrication. And a microscope that you are have access to that you can tinker with, that you can basically build a perfusion system around if you wanted to do this kind of stuff at scale. But I'll also say the scale that we have now, um, we, we do hundreds of cells per trace and thousands of cells per day um, if, if we wanted to. So that throughput is already really quite good. Um, if you wanted to do faster 3D, uh, Lightsheet will do it, but then you're running, you're running into some of these um, practical limitations that I think are tractable, but we haven't, we haven't in my lab. And, and I know Guy has himself unmuted. I don't know if you've been able to set this up in London or more recently in Montreal, Guy. Yeah, so as, as, as you said, we, in the Nature Metabolism paper, we did that using a spinning disc microscope. We didn't go the full depth of the islet. We went three or four cells deep. Um, and that was feasible with, um, you know, we had enough photons to do that and still keep resolution and brightness. And I strongly agree with you that the way forward is light sheet. And that is something that we are setting up and will attempt to do that in January with colleagues at McGill. So we see that as the way forward. Fascinating. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting. So I know that Goober is all over the light sheet. So they are also, uh, they're also interested in kind of that opportunity. I guess I would, uh, you know, I, I would ask like just one more sort of question about the gap junctions. How uh, can you sort of further understand that functionality between, you know, and, and whether or not the delta cells are connected by gap junctions or if they're connecting to other cells via gap junctions? I mean, what can you just kind of drill down on that a little bit? Sure. Um, so I think the suggestion that delta cells are connected to beta cells via gap junctions it, of the kind that connect beta cells amongst each other, uh, I don't think our data support that at all. And the experiments that I showed where we observe beta and delta cells at the same time, and then we come in and we basically prevent depolarization. And that characteristic calcium spiking that I showed, these, these delta cells always being on, Mm-hmm. The moment you prevent depolarization, that behavior goes away. And that means that a depolarization is enough to drive that behavior. And that depolarization would then propagate to neighboring cells that are, that are connected to that cell through a connection 36 gap junction. It is the reason why beta cells are actually prevented from firing until they all do. Yeah. So in essence, the beta cell syncytium acts as a sink. So it does two things. What that does is it synchronizes the beta cells, but it also prevents them from going off until all of them do. It's almost like Dutch democracy where nothing happens until you finally get consensus. And that's a slow mechanism uh, where, um, where there is this inertia. And, and the fact that delta cells are able to behave independent of that, I think is clear evidence that there isn't a gap junction. And if you drill down and look at the timing of it, the timing is off. Delta cells are, 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 are not behaving at all in a way that I think is consistent with a gap junction connection. Um, so I think that's, that's an, uns- there's, there's papers out there on both ends 
of of the of the equation. But I think I think our data now that we have them in the same islands at the same time, I think are pretty clear that that it's it's, it's hard to reconcile with the connection through the six like gap junction uh, mechanism. Yeah, good. That was well said. I see you have a question here. Do you think if it is feasible to use uh, GCAM P6 as a readout to perform a large cell screening for factors to improve calcium responsive stem cell derived beta cells? Hmm. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I work I haven't showed. I mean, people are doing this. I know that Michael Sander and probably many others have, have cell lines that already have GCAM6 in it so they can generate, uh, they can differentiate them into, into beta cell likes and, and do those kinds of screens. Um, I have yet to see, um, I've yet to see approaches at scale, but I think in principle they could. Um, we on on mostly on mouse, on the mouse side uh, routinely are doing a dissociated prep where we are imaging thousands of cells like in a couple of hours, um, just to get a get a sense of the functional heterogeneity. Um, and and that is actually in a way easier than doing an intact islet because um, you, you just it's a two D prep rather than a three D prep, and that works well. Now we're not talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cells. We're still we're still talking about thousands of cells, uh, but thousands of cells in, in over, over the course of a day or two um, is actually, I think, a pretty reasonable throughput compared to what traditional techniques um, have been able to do. So um, if you had a, a targeted hypothesis or, or a limited number of conditions, I think this is eminently possible. Okay. The, uh, last, uh, last question for me is, what are your thoughts about layering artificial intelligence over some of these results that you've discovered and <clears throat> brought to light? Because it's almost like you're you're kind of, I mean, you look at some of this imagery and, and the, the readouts, it's almost like you've got an orchestra there of these cells, right? They're all doing sort of different things, but together they make this great contribution. So would artificial intelligence, you know, I know there's big, there's companies like Immune AI, <clears throat> in San Francisco and Tel Aviv. And then there's also um, uh, Immune ML, which we just uh, spoke to them the other day. That's an open source um, you know, machine learning platform. W what kinds of um, experiments might be really interesting to do layering artificial intelligence over these kinds of data you have? That's a, that's a great question. And we're starting to rely more and more on algorithms to kind of help us quantify like the differences in behaviors that we see. And I think the next step is now that we have data and some data sets across thousands of alpha cells or, or, or thousands of beta and delta cells, um, one can rather, and we look at these and we observe things and then we go back in and we say, well, we think we observed this and now let's, let's isolate that particular aspect of the behavior. And let's put a number on that so we can quantify it and test whether it's real or not. Uh, the next step is, I think, to take all these data sets and kind of feed them in and say, okay, well, here are uh, 5,000 random cells and, and, and you go ahead and figure out how they, how they resemble each other, group them together and kind of tell us uh, what different cells you recognize. And I, and I predict if you do that within a whole islet, you're going to faithfully get delta, beta and alpha cells back if you expose them to the right series of, of stimuli, like I showed you in these videos, but you can then also start to do uh, within each say beta cell or each, each alpha cell population, you can then ask the question, okay, well, we know these are alpha cells, but is there anything that se separates them within and kind of um, let the let the uh, the algorithms tell you sometimes things that you might not have observed um, with the naked eye um, and, 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 and help you dig through the, these data sets that are getting 
increasingly richer. We haven't done this. We are still, um, we, we typically identify features ahead of time and then go in and, and, uh, and quantify them. I think what you're describing or what you're suggesting is, is, is the next step and what we are positioned to do now. Okay, then <clears throat> I'll go to <clears throat> I'll connect you guys with the immune ML team out of Oslo. They're very nice and Great. really interested in collaboration. Okay, well, this was so fascinating. Um, just amazing uh, work you guys are doing up there at UCS, UC Davis. And um, just can't wait to hear what comes from the laboratory, the Housing Laboratory next. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. All right, have a great rest of the day, everyone. You too.